Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is... Andrew Owen. Yeah, and you know, last ep- last episode, last week we were talking about, um, you know, the, the classical period that we haven't talked too much, uh, we really haven't talked anything about the classical period yet. So I decided uh, that, you know, this next couple of episodes we actually get into it. But of course, before we get into the classical, we need to talk about what came before the classical period, right after the Baroque, and really what started the whole this whole thing that is the the symphonic uh, music that without this, without all these things that we're going to talk about today, we wouldn't have, you know, uh, this podcast, of course. <laughs> all right. Public concerts. That's right. <laughs> things like that. All right. So um, tell us a little bit about the Stile Galant. Uh, sure. Andrew. So this, so this style uh, called the Galant, G-A-L-A-N-T, spelled pretty close to English gallant without the extra yeah. L. Um, it's, it's a style that was fashionable from about 1720 uh, even well into the 1770s. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, you, if you're the kind of guy who likes the Baroque period to end at 1750 and the classical period <laughs> to begin at 1750, well, I mean, that uh, might be a little oversimplified. So yeah. there's plenty of, um, I mean, you can call it pre-classical, uh, but in generally, but generally this, this kind of gallant music is... Uh, uh, it's all around the the classic era just as much as the late Baroque, if you want yeah. to call it that. Uh, so, it, all, so, so the point of the Gallant period, the Gallant style, is to bring music back to um, something that's a lot more simple and more immediate, uh, something that is easy to understand, something that is wonderfully symmetrical, and something that carries a sense of uh, balance. Uh, so this means simpler, more song-like melodies. It means a decreased use of polyphony. So we start seeing homophony being used a lot more of. Mm-hmm. Polyphony is when more than one note happens at the same time, when more than one line, melodic line is happening simultaneously. All throughout the mm-hmm. Baroque, this is Baroque, this is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, but in the classical era, it's all about the melody being supported by a harmony, and that mm-hmm. is called homophony. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have the decreased use of polyphony here. We have short periodic phrases, uh, and periodic just refers to the structure of the phrase. So the phrase is equally uh, strong on both sides of it. It has a reduced harmonic vocabulary, which emphasizes the tonic and the dominant. So you have two chords uh, emphasized a lot, and there is a clear distinction between soloist and accompaniment. So C.P.E. Bach, or Emmanuel Bach, as he was known, or just mm-hmm. Bach until Johann Sebastian's. Uh, Restoration, I guess, is revitalization over in uh, in Leipzig with Mendelssohn in the 1840s or so, 1830s, 20s. Uh, before that, Bach was Emanuel Bach. That's this guy, C.P.E. Bach, and Daniel Gottlob Tuch uh, were two of the most um, uh, significant theorists of the late 18th century who contrasted the gallant with the learned or the strict styles. Um, the, the the German Empfindsame Stil, which uh, seeks to impress, which seeks to express uh, personal emotions and sensitivity, can be seen either as a closely related North German dialect of the International Gallant style, or as contrasted with it as between the music of uh, Emanuel Bach, who wrote in both styles, and that of Johann Christian Bach, who carried the Gallant style further than uh, further and was closer to classical, uh, closer mm-hmm. to the classical period. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, so there, the Impensamestil was a common thing before, the idea of expressing something. Gallant music does not mean to express anything deep inside. It's, it's all about <laughs> perfection and trying to make things pleasant. So the Impensamestil was something from the 1740s. This was a parallel trend from the Gallant style from Germany. This is an over-the-top, sensitive style. The, the works of Emanuel Bach are in this style. 
Uh, the goal is not to please, but to achieve a sensitive sentiment. Uh, so music should evoke gentle tears of melancholy. <laughs> uh, the, the main goal is to touch the heart and touch the affections by playing from the soul. Uh, not like trained birds, as uh, some people might associate with uh, the music of our uh, great Baroque masters, like Sebastian Bach and yeah. such. <laughs> um, the good singer should be the model. Here we find the mixing of international styles, Italian melodies, French, uh, modest technical demands, and French ornaments, German complex harmonies. Uh, this has a lot more dissonances than the gallant style, which mm -hmm. uh, is what we're going to talk about today. So the music style was part of a wider gallant movement in art at the time. Uh, so, so the Infinitesimestil uh, is is a more sentimental style. The gallant, less sentimental. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, this word gallant derives from French, uh, um, where it it was in use from at least the 16th century. In the early 18th century, uh, gallant homme. Uh, described as a person of fashion, elegant, culture, and virtuous. Uh, the German theorist Johann Matheson appears to have been fond of the term. Um, it features in the title of his first publication of 1713, uh, which is in German, of course, it's really long, so the translation is roughly, um, um, it's basically relating the, the new orchestra, which is being guided by this idea of the galant, the galant homme, the, the, you know, the galant person, the, the galant man, uh, which is this perfect impression of the sovereignty and dignity of the noble music. So Matheson was apparently the first to refer to uh, a galant style in music. Uh, in his uh, Das Volksende Orchestra of 1721, he, recon uh, he recognized a lighter, more modern style, um, which is the Einem Galant Stilo, um, this, this galant style, and named among its leading practitioners. <clears throat> Giovanni Bononcini, uh, Antonio Caladra, uh, George Philip Telemann, Alessandro Scarlatti, uh, Antonio Vivaldi, and uh, Handel. Uh, all were composing Italian opera seria, uh, a voice-driven musical style, and opera remained the central form of Galant-styled music. Uh, the new music was not essential, um, essentially a chord music as it was a city music. The cities emphasized by uh, Daniel Hertz, a recent historian of the style, were first all, um, of all Naples. Then Venice, Dresden, Berlin, Stuttgart, and Mainham, and Paris. Uh, many Galant composers spent their careers in less central cities. Um, we have, of course, people like uh, J.C. Bach and uh, also uh, Carl Friedrich Abel in London, uh, Giovanni Pesiello in St. Petersburg, uh, George Philip Telemann in Hamburg, and uh, Luigi Boccherini in Madrid. What eventually led to, to this style we can find in the Baroque period, uh, like the Trio Sonata, the Sonata da Chiesa, and the Italian Opera uh, Overture, uh, we were, which were called Sinfonia. And all these were in three movements, structured in fast, slow, fast, and that basically plays into these first, these first uh, compositions that were called uh, symphonies. Um, and of course we're going to talk about one today. But of course this all had uh, previous um, you know, um, forerunners in the Baroque period. Oh yeah, when I think of like a Vivaldi concerto, it's easy to apply all of those understandings to the classical era. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing something similar, it's it's very, uh, it, it goes well together. Yeah. Uh, so the rejection of so much accumulated learning and formula in music is paralleled only by the rejection in the early 20th century of the entire structure of key relationships, so it was kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. Not every contemporary was delighted with this revolutionary uh, 
simplification. Mm -hmm. uh, Johann Samuel Petri, in his Anleitung zur Praktischen Musik uh, in 1782, spoke of the great catastrophe in music, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the change was as much as the birth of Romanticism as it was of Classicism. So the folk song element in poetry, like the singable cantabile melody in Gallant music, was brought to public notice in Thomas Percy's Reliques of Ancient Poetry in 1765, and James McPherson's Ossian inventions during the 1760s. Some of Telemann's later music and of Bach's sons, um, uh, Johann Quantz, uh, Hasse, Giovanni Battista San Martini, uh, mm -hmm. Giuseppe Tardini, Baldassari Galuppi, uh, Johann Stamitz, Domenico Alberti, the founder of the Alberti bass, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, not really a founder, but... It's pretty much all he does. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and, and early Mozart are examples, are all people who uh, exemplify the Gallant style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this simplified style was melody-driven, not constructed. Uh, so much classical music was to be on rhythmic or melodic motifs. Um, this, uh, this is a quote um, by, by Haydn. Uh, that he said that even in his old age is reported to have said, if you want to know whether a melody is really beautiful, sing it without accompaniment. So this simplification also extended to harmonic rhythm, which is generally slower in galant music than is in the case in the earlier Baroque style, uh, thus making lavish melodic ornaments and nuances of secondary harmonic uh, colorings more important. And yeah, of course the mel melodies are, you know, more uh, very you know, very important here in, in this style. And, and of course, the, the harmonic rhythm, rhythm moves a little slower. Um, but this music is usually in major keys, of course, because, you know, it's, it's all about simplification, elegance, more beautiful nature. So it's, it's always mostly going to be in major keys, of course, except the Enfish Tamer still. Uh, and most of these early symphonies begin with the triple hammer strokes to get people's attention. And this tradition carries over in some cases to the Romantic period, um, like Beethoven's Eroica. Um, and also, I mean, there's, there are examples from all over the place, you know, actually um, the, the Schubert that we heard last week, I think, had one of those too. And so it is one of those uh, tropes that we find in music, you know, one of those cliches that we, we find here. That Hammer blows are so good. I mean, we even have them uh, in the modern era, uh, Louis Andreessen and his um, De Materie. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this the first movement is just it's 127 hammer blows yeah. at random intervals. It's, <laughs> it's all just the whole bam, bam. So I mean, it's, it's a concept that uh, continues uh, in our consciousness. Yeah, and this kind of um, this kind of symphonies usually don't have a second theme. Uh, the continuer, the, actually, the continuo part doesn't go away until the 1770s and 1780s. So this this idea, you know, that there is always the bass player with the keyboard player doesn't go away as, you know, it's like, okay, the, the Baroque period is over, we have to stop using the, the continuum. No, that, that's not how it went down. Um, uh, there's, and, and if there are some second, second uh, the second movements in this kind of uh, music are always more lyrical, um, or, of course, singing and, and operatic to contrast, and finales to be dance movements, rondos or minuet, in this kind of style, in the, in the galant style. There are just certain expectations, and there's nothing wrong with having yeah. those expectations. I mean, we have them today in television broadcasting. You know, you yeah. have to make your episode 30 minutes long, including commercials. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, these are just basic things that society expects. Mm -hmm. So the affinities of Gallant style with Rococo uh, in the visual arts are easily overplayed, but the characteristics that were valued in both genres were freshness, accessibility, and charm. Mm -hmm. uh, you should be able to sing any of these melodies very mm -hmm. comfortably. Uh, 
uh, Watteau's uh, Fête Galante, uh, where Rococo, not merely in the subject matter, but also in the lighter, cleaner tonality of his palette and the glazes that supplied a galant translucency to his finished pictures, often compared to the orchestrations, are often compared to the orchestrations of galant music. And that is uh, something that uh, Daniel Hartz points out as well back in 2003. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, the galant style really uh, blossoms with Rococo. It's something that we often call the Rococo when we're trying to decide what the missing link is between Baroque yeah. and Classical. Yeah. But, but, you know, Rococo is just uh, sort of a, you know, sort of a middle ground. Mm -hmm. It happens in both the visual arts and the, uh, and the music. Yeah, arts. definitely. And, of course, there are a lot of uh, major cities that practice this, this type of style. But there is one particular city that's really important to this style, which is Mannheim. The steamroller. <laughs> yeah. And this, uh, this is a town in Germany, of course. And it's a very important town in the, in the 18th century. Uh, it was a great mu musical center uh, at the time, which prized its orchestra. So that's, that's really important, important. And, of course, this was one of the best orchestras in Europe. Uh, the musical... Athens of music, and this this uh, was a paradise of composers. And Leopold Mozart loved this place. Um, it was located along the the Rhine uh, the Rhine uh, River. And when an emperor died, different electors from different places chose the next em empire, um, the ne the next you know emperor. And one of these electors lived there in Mainheim, which was which was Carl Philip. And there was a lot of trade, uh, thanks to the river, of course, as well. So this was a rich place and could afford good musicians. Um, the house of house Habsburg controlled the empire and. They established an ensemble called Capelle, which uh, or Capel, which uh, had 50 musicians that played there. And Johann Samich uh, of Bohemia, who lived between 1717 and 1757, led the orchestra. And th that's the composer we're going to talk about today, of course. Um, there were great wind players in Bohemia. Uh, Stamitz brought them uh, here to Mannheim. Uh, the next elector. Carl Theodor also supported the orchestra and the capel grew. Uh, the orchestra became the, the status symbol of the court and not the opera company. So that's also very important that the status symbol was the symphony and not the, the, the opera. And this orchestra beca became famous uh, for their precision and discipline. They started the idea of uniform bowing, uh, known for their great bohemian wind players. And they had clarinet players in their orchestras in the in the 1750s, and of course, young Mozart, because you know Leopold uh, Leopold liked this place, so he took Mozart uh, to listen to the Stamitz Orchestra, and and Mozart heard the clarinets here, and of course, that's going to play also a very important role in, in in Mozart's life, where he basically kind of reintroduces the clarinet into the orchestra later in his life, and he even writes a concerto for the clarinet as well. The clarinet was rising in popularity. Exactly. Uh, just like in uh, Benjamin Britten's Rejoice in the Lamb, which is a setting of a text that is mm -hmm. from around 1750s. Mm -hmm. uh, the, clarinet, the clarinet rhyme. So it means even in the, in the common parlor, mm -hmm. people were, became familiar with the clarinet around this time. Yeah. And Mozart helped with that. And Mannheim was one of the sources of this thing. So mm -hmm. uh, one of the big propagators of the clarinet. Mozart, of course, is receiving a musical education by being everywhere at mm -hmm. every time. Yeah. It's just... Yes absorbing everything. Mm -hmm. So um, the contributions of this school, uh, we'll talk about a bit. So the myth, um, the first thing to say is that Stamitz was the first to have a standard four-movement symphony, which mm -hmm. uh, was fast, slow, minuet trio finale. Mm -hmm. uh, minuet trio being the third movement, which is sort of um, inserted between the slow uh, move, middle movement and the finale. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's one big contribution of the school, is this four-movement uh, symphony. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, the, we have a larger orchestra, which has flutes, oboes, clarinets, uh, and occasionally trumpets and timpani. Typically, trumpet always goes with the timpani. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is another contribution of the school. We have independent wind parts that aren't just doubling the strings, so that's sort of mm -hmm. a new thing. Uh, and mm -hmm. probably the biggest thing is the Mannheim Crescendo, uh, mm -hmm. which, um, which all that is is you know, gradually getting louder. Mm -hmm. People didn't really... <laughs> codify that music should get quiet to soft, quiet to loud mm -hmm. gradually in music for really until this point. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, it was just sort of assumed the music, if you're going to have a crescendo, it would be met with a diminuendo at the end, it'd be nice, it'd be a phrase, it'd be a nice sung phrase. But the Mannheim crescendo is one of their little inventions mm -hmm. uh, where they write it in the score to just get gradually louder and louder. And it's real exciting if you're not used to it. I mean, the Baroque era is full of. Um, full of things being one dynamic mm -hmm. and uh, Mannheim sort of starts the classic period off with the possibility of gradual changes in that. So mm -hmm. uh, we also have uh, something that's called the Mannheim Rocket which is uh, also taken from the Italian orchestra. Uh, this is a rising triadic figure at the beginning of the piece. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the, the common Stamitz one that we always look at in the Junior Music History Survey well, starts out with something quite like that. Dun 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 this so sort of has that set. Mm -hmm. Those three hammer blows again. And then mm -hmm. we, another big uh, contribution of the school is the Mannheim Walze, or the, or the roller, or the steam roller. Uh, yeah. This is a static bass line and a rising melodic line over a bass, over that static bass. So it stays the same, and then over it, something, the, the melodic line is gradually getting higher and higher. Yeah. So, I mean, those are all really big contributions from Mannheim for yeah. uh, the, the trajectory of Western music, if you follow Western music being a, some kind of continuous story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when talking about this style, this, 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 you know, this period, we could have chosen a lot of different composers. We could have, we could have, we could have talked about San Martini, about one of the back songs, of course. We could have talked about some other people, but, but I think Stamets is a good... A good one because he's right there in the middle of Mannheim. So uh, Stamitz, uh, he was actually his his real when he was born. His name was Jan Vaclav uh, Antonin Stamik, and later during his life in the Mannheim, uh, he was Germanized as Johann Wenzel Anton Stamitz. Uh, he lived, like we said before, from 1717 until 1757, and he was originally from, you know, the Czech, the Bohemia, right? Uh, he was a Czech composer and vi violinist. Um, it's now called Czechia. <laughs> That's in the news. It's no longer called the Czech Republic. Yeah. by English speakers. Yeah. And Johann was the father of Karl Stamitz and Anton Stamitz, which also became uh, composers. But um, his music reflects the trans transition between the Baroque period and the classical era, of course. Oh, yeah. He's one of those transitional figures. So in a way, Stamitz should be kind of considered the uh, sort of the Beethoven uh, <laughs> for Romanticism. Uh, Stamitz yeah. was sort of the, the beginner of sort of the, the big middle figure there. Yeah. So Jan Vaclav Antonin Stamitz. He was born in uh, Nemetske Brod, uh, Czechia. Uh, again, we've someone has gone through uh, Wikipedia and replaced all of the appearances of Czech Republic with Czechia, which is good. Somebody had to do it. So, uh, <laughs> so he was born there uh, in June 18 of 1717, and he was the third child born and the first to survive past infancy. Um, he, he was baptized on June 19 of 1717 and probably born a day or two before the baptism. Uh, let me just really early baptism. So, uh, so his name appears in the registry as uh, Jan Václav Antonin 
Stamitz. The Stamitz family was very artistic, uh, as Johann's father, Antonin Ignatz, uh, was organist at the uh, Dean's Church before becoming a merchant, landowner, and a town councillor. His three brothers were all quite artistic as well. Uh, uh, Josef Frantischek uh, Stamitz was a painter, and Antonin uh, Tadeyash uh, Stamitz was, uh, and, and Vaclav Jan were both musicians at some point in their lives. Um, though I'd say that, that Jan Vaclav was um, sort of more well-known. So, mm-hmm. so Stamitz uh, received his first schooling uh, in Niemitzgebrot, in his first musical introduction. Instruction most likely came from his father. Uh, in 1728, he enrolled in the Jesuit gymnasium in, in Yehlava, where he received uh, training from the Jesuits of Bohemia, who's, uh, who are just a delightful group of militant Christians. Their, their, <laughs> their high standard of musical education produced students who were the premier musicians in Europe. They were to music what the Mormons are to learning a language. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty, they, they shaped him up quite well yeah. there in the Mietzkebrot. Yeah, so Stamitz spent the academic year between 1734 and 1735 at the University of Prague. After only one year, uh, he left the university to pursue a career as a violin virtuoso. Uh, Stamitz' activities during this uh, the six-year period between his departure from the university in 1735 and his appointment in Mainham around 1741 are not precisely known. Um, but we can assume that he played a lot of violin, <laughs> I guess. He probably did play the violin. <laughs> Trust me, if you don't start playing that thing young, you're not going to be good at it. Uh, video going around. So, uh, so Stamitz was appointed by the Mannheim court either in 1741 or 42. Great, great couple of years. I mean, I, mm-hmm. it feels like just yesterday. <laughs> now, uh, so most likely his engagement at Mannheim resulted from contacts made, between the, made during the Bohemian campaign of the coronation of Karl Albert also known as Carl VII, a close ally of the Elector Palatine. Now, I know that's scary for Star Wars fans, but I promise you he was a pretty <laughs> nice Elector. Um, Palatine. Unlimited Palatine. power. <laughs> Good. Let the hate flow. So in January of 1742, Stamitz performed at Mannheim as part of the festivities surrounding the marriage of Carl Theodor, who succeeded his uncle Carl Philipp as the Elector Palatine, uh, as Elector Palatine less than a year later. Uh, Carl Albert of Bavaria was a guest at the wedding, so, um, so in a way, I mean, I'd say that uh, Stamitz had sort of injected himself at a pretty important time in the history of that area. Definitely, yeah. And there in Mannheim, Stamitz advanced rapidly, becoming the Esterhof violinist, or first court violinist in 1743. Uh, he was granted an increase of salary by uh, 200 golden to 900 golden. Uh, the most of any instrumentalist, any instrumentalist in Mainham, so we can assume that he was a pretty good violinist by this time. Um, uh, in 1745 or 1746, he was given the title Concertmeister, uh, the, the uh, academ- academies uh, which featured the Mainham School and the Mainham Orchestra were the primary responsibility of the Concertmeister and Stamitz uh, was required to prepare uh, and conduct the, the performance, perform concertos and provide orchestral compositions of his own. Uh, so here's when we start to see all these symphonies pop up here in his life. On February 27th of 1750, he was named the Instrumental Music Director. Uh, Stamish's other duties uh, and responsibilities included supervision and performance of chamber music and performance in the orchestra for certain opera, ballet productions, balls, and uh, church services. So pretty busy, of course. Uh, Stamish was married on July 1st of 1744 to Maria Antonia Lunenborn. Uh, they had five children together, uh, Carl Philip, Maria Francisco, Anton Tadeus uh, Nepomuk, and two children who died in infancy. infancy. Yeah, um, what a delightful name, Nepomuk. 
the same middle name as uh, Hummel had, the great mm-hmm. uh, transitional figure as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, probably around the late summer of 1754, Stamets took a year-long journey to Paris, uh, and not Paris, come on, let's pronounce things in English. No. Uh, so the, perhaps at the invitation of the musical patron, Alexandre Le Riche de la Poupée, <laughs> Alexandre, Alexandre le riche de la poupelinière. Good enough. Uh, with uh, whom he stayed, Stamets appeared in public in Paris for the first time at a concert, concert spirituel. Uh, and this is one of the famous uh, concert series, is a concert series that got the symphony off the ground. Concert spirituel lasted for many decades. Mm-hmm quite a big deal. Uh, so he, he appeared in public for the first time there in September 8 of 1754. Uh, Stamets' success in Paris induced him to, be, to publish his orchestral trios, Opus 1, and possibly other publications with various Parisian publishers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stamets probably returned to Mannheim around the autumn of 1755, dying there in the spring of 1757, uh, less than two years later at the age of 39. Uh, the entry of his death reads this. Uh, Quote, March 30, 1757, buried, Joas Steinmez, director of court music, so expert in his art that his equal will hardly be found. <laughs> no one knew that his equal will one day be found in Karlheim <laughs> <Carlein> Stockhausen. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> He's a really advanced uh, modernist composer. Mm-hmm. You'll love him. Give him a lesson sometime, folks. <laughs> Yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about his composition. So Stamets' most important composition are, of course, his 58 symphonies and his 10 orchestral trios. Uh, the orchestral trios, although frequently classified as symphonies, are actually somewhere between the symphony and the chamber trio and may be played with or without doubling of parts. Uh, Stamets was also a composer of concertos. Uh, these include, in addition to his numerous violin concertos, two for harpsichord, 12 for flute, one for oboe, and one for the clarinet. Uh, among the earliest concertos uh, for the instrument, of course, this, this clarinet concerto. Um, and uh, uh, he, he also composed a large amount of chamber music for various instrumental combinations, as well as eight vocal works, including his widely circulated uh, concert Mass in the Indie. Mm-hmm. Mass in the. So due to at least five other musicians of the 18th century bearing the surname Stamets, including four from Johann's immediate family, any attempt to catalog Stamets' Stamets works is risky. So um, this is mainly in view, uh, mainly due to the many variations in spelling of his name as well. So actually, few difficulties arise in distinguishing between works by Johann Steinmetz and those of his sons, Karl and Anton. By contrast, the relationship of the names uh, Steinmetz, uh, mm-hmm. which means stonemason, mm-hmm. uh, and Steinmetz uh, has uh, caused substantial confusion, uh, as, as at least two other musicians called Steinmetz lived in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, um, it's challenging to, put, to nail this guy's life down, and, and yeah. you might have noticed that a lot of what we've say, a lot of what we said about his biography have, has been sort of caveated by. Uh, seems to have, you know, he yeah. seems to have taken a, a journey here and seems to have come back here. Yeah, you know, we, we were doing our best. <laughs> yeah. Um. <clears throat> So uh, let's talk about his innovation. So Stamet expanded the orchestra score, making the winds essential for the compositions, like we said before, not just doubling, you know, just actually having some actual parts for each of the woodwinds. Uh, his symphonies uh, of the 1750s are scored for eight parts, four strings, two horns, two oboes, although two flutes and clarinets might substitute. So that's the, 
the caveat there. Uh, horns not only provided a harmonic backdrop for strings, but solo lines as well. And we also have one of the first composers to write independent lines for the oboes. So, you know, a really, really important composer for the, for the winds, especially. The chief innovation in Stuyvesant's symphonic works uh, was uh, their adoption of the four-movement mm -hmm. cycle, four-movement scheme. So this uh, this has a fast-slow pair followed by a minuet trio in the third movement, ending with a presto or prestissimo movement, a fast movement. Mm -hmm. uh, while isolated examples of the structure exist previously, Stuyvesant was the first composer to use it consistently. Well over half of his symphonies and nine of his ten orchestral trios are in four movements. Mm -hmm. He also contributed to the development of the sonata form, uh, most often used in first movements of symphonies um, well into, well, you know, yeah. to the present day, just yeah. about people still occasionally mm -hmm. refer to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's very interesting, you know, how we can start to see the development of basically everything that's going to come, you know, because these symphonies are really, really short, you know, they're like 20, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then we see basically the expansion, you know, we're going to talk about Haydn, uh, and then we're going to talk about Mozart, we're, we're going to talk about Beethoven, we see how things get to, you know, start to expand, right, and and we, we go from a 10 minute symphony here, um, to beginning, you know, to be in sonata form to, you know, the two-hour symphonies uh, of, of Mahler, things like that. <laughs> the history of music is the history of one-uppers. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so, Stamis also adapted an extended trace originally developed in the Italian opera in his compositions. He added features in his pieces such as extended crescendo passages and other dynamic effects. Uh, Stamis also incorporated simplified tutti chordal textures, sectionally specialized scores, and slow harmonic motion, like Italian operas. Uh, Stamis' compositions have had uh, have a strong sense of rhythmic drive and distinctive thematic material with the exposition. Very good. So, uh, that brings us to one of his symphonies. Uh, mm -hmm. It's good to, uh, to note that they're all pretty much about the same in quality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not quite like um, the... Uh, we don't quite canonize Stamets' music like we might canonize Beethoven's. Yeah, in three, or in three periods, things like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's nice music. It's pleasant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody seems to enjoy it. Yeah. So the, so the symphony we're going to talk about is the Symphony in D Major, Opus 3, Number 2. He, was, he had this published in Paris in 1757, or well, he had it, he died in 1757, so it might have <laughs> just been published in Paris after his death, I don't know. So anyway, he was almost certainly uh, composing this work in the early 1750s before his trip to Paris. Uh, it was scored uh, for con comparatively large forces, it provides a fine illustration of Stamets's late symphonic style. Although, of course, it's going to be his late symphonic style, he's writing it right at the end of his life, mm -hmm. the age mm -hmm. of 39. Mm -hmm. I got 11 more years. <laughs> uh, although resourceful in its musical organization and not without beguiling melodic ideas, the most interesting and dramatic feature of the work is its powerful scoring and the flamboyant treatment of the orchestra. Early in the movement, Samitz introduces one of his famous devices, the orchestral crescendo, where all of the instruments get gradually uh, louder and louder. Mm -hmm. This begins softly with strings and horns over the gently pulsating bass line. The music gradually builds to this fortissimo outburst, this very strong uh, volume outburst by the full orchestra. This electrifying effect, which literally causes its early audiences, causes its early audiences to rise out of their seats, sort of frightening uh, or, you know, awe-inspiring, was not Stamets' personal invention, but he made it a hallmark of the Mannheim style of orchestral writing. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and of course, this is something that we see later on in uh, Haydn's creation, mm -hmm. when, when there is light. Mm -hmm. Everybody <laughs> has to 
have a heart attack in the audience. <laughs> so re remarkable too is the extensive use of wind instruments in both of the Andantino and the trio. So the finale of the Prestissimo is, uh, is powerfully scored like the first one, but lacks something of its breath and sweep. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, I mean, it, that's sort of the piece again. <laughs> that's the, the D major one. Yeah, and I mean, this, like, like I said before, right, these pieces are 10 minutes long, 15 minutes long. Nothing like some of the works that we talked about before, so we can actually talk about two different ones. So the other one that we that we're going to talk that uh, we're going to talk about is Symphony in E flat major, Opus 11, number three, and this was issued by the Parisian publisher Venier uh, in 1758 in a collection of symphonies by various authors. Uh, the probable date of composition uh, is probably around 1754, 1755, um, and, and this place is the symphony among the last time it's composed. Uh, like, like the symphony in D major, uh, the present this work is cast in four moments as well and does appear rather modern to the present-day listener uh, of course people all the time um, um. Uh, the first movement, uh, built around two contrasting themes, is not divided into two sections with uh, repeats, uh, as one might expect, but is written as a continuous uh, whole rather in a manner of an overture. Uh, Stamis makes good use of his orchestral forces, giving important thematic materials to the oboes and rhythmic punctuations. Uh, the central andante is more conventional in structure and omits the oboes and horns. Uh, a brisk minuet uh, with contrasting trio in the relative minor precedes the prestissimo, which is in 3-8 uh, finale, with its thrilling crescendi and driving forward momentum. So, you know, really, really small pieces. But, you know, we get, to see, we get the sense um, of how things are starting here in terms of symphonic music, right? Right, and not only are they starting, I think uh, that it does produce a good musical... Um, product itself. It's actually very satisfying music to, yeah, to enjoy. Definitely. Yeah, it's, definitely. It's, it's more than just uh, certainly something that uh, leads us forward, but it's also something that uh, that shows off the, the ability to write music well. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably the biggest difference between the classical era and the romantic era. This mm -hmm. is uh, one of our first real diving divings into uh, classical era symphonies. Mm -hmm. Uh, but these, these are the first ones. So the idea here of, of Gallant and the idea of, of classical period music is that music should piece together schemes, should piece together basic ideas like you do a ballet. Mm -hmm. you know, ballet dance has all these specific stock figures that you put in a particular order. Mm -hmm. That's what we do in the uh, Gallant, the Gallant style music as well, or mm -hmm. Enlightenment Gallant is, is also known. Yeah. Um, Gerdigan, uh, Robert O. Gerdigan, who's a music theorist uh, who specializes in this, talks about the Gallant period being a uh, sort of a bringing together of, of these parts. And you really don't want um, your, you don't want to hear any struggle. You don't want to hear the composer's uh, yeah. inner turmoil, Gerdigan yeah. says, any more than you want to taste your personal chef's struggle in your food. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense uh, to, uh, to dwell on that kind of stuff. Just make the music well formed. And that's what you know, Mozart became so good at early yeah. on in his life. And of course that's also because we're talking about court music, right? We're not talking about church music or anything like that. We're talking about court music, so it's all very elegant. All this music, you know, is, is pleasant, but it's also very elegant. You know, you can, you can find yourself almost, you know, this menu as you can find yourself, you know, dancing to this in a ball with your power powder wig, of course. Yeah, it's just nice. I mean, it's the difference between uh, picking a suit out from under the bed uh, <laughs> covered in cat hair or 
having it freshly from the cleaners and wind blowing <laughs> it and everything for all the cat hair. I mean, that's, that's the difference that we're talking about here. I mean, the, this music is designed to make you feel good, yeah. to make you feel like things are put together well. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what composition and composers are generally trying to do for the rest of history, is trying to make music well. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, when Beethoven rolls around, we start thinking that to be well formed means to be well expressed yeah uh, to you know to show the the anguish of human suffering and in yeah. the modern era to show that the world is imperfect yeah uh, and thus music should be too mm -hmm. but even so it's perfectly imperfect when you get to those periods yeah uh, that's what they're going for they're always going for well formedness I think definitely yeah all right awesome anything else you want to say about this Andrew I think I'm solid man all right great well, thank you again for listening to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. Of course, you can email us at symphonypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on YouTube. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Oh, yeah. And there it is. Like the symphonies, this is a little shorter. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's okay. Yes.